0: Section 9 of Volume 1e of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one e section nine chapter fifty two part one charles the first there now opens to us a new scene charles naturally disgusted with parliaments who he found were determined to proceed against him with unmitigated vigor both in invading his prerogative and refusing him all supply resolved not to call any more till he should see greater indications of a compliant disposition in the nation having lost his great favorite buckingham he became his own minister and never afterwards reposed in any one such unlimited confidence as he chiefly follows his own genius and disposition his measures are henceforth less rash and hasty though the general tenor of his administration still wants somewhat of being entirely legal, and perhaps more of being entirely prudent. We shall endeavor to exhibit a just idea of the events which followed for some years, so far as they regard foreign affairs, the state of the court, and the government of the nation. The incidents are neither numerous nor illustrious, but the knowledge of them is necessary for understanding the subsequent transactions which are so memorable charles destitute of all supply was necessarily reduced to embrace a measure which ought to have been the result of reason and sound policy he made peace with the two crowns against which he had hitherto waged a war entered into without necessity and conducted without glory notwithstanding the distracted and helpless condition of england no attempt was made either by france or spain to invade their enemy nor did they entertain any further project than to defend themselves against the feeble and ill-concerted expeditions of that kingdom pleased that the jealousies and quarrels between king and parliament had disarmed so formidable a power they carefully avoided any enterprise which might rouse either the terror or the anger of the english and dispose them to domestic union and submission the endeavors to regain the good will of the nation were carried so far by the king of spain that he generously released and sent home all the english prisoners taken in the expedition against cadiz the example was imitated by france after the retreat of the english from the isle of rey When princes were in such dispositions, and had so few pretensions on each other, it could not be difficult to conclude a peace. The treaty was first signed with France. The situation of the king's affairs did not entitle him to demand any conditions for the Huguenots, and they were abandoned to the will of their sovereign. Peace was afterwards concluded with Spain, where no conditions were made in favor of the Palatine except that spain promised in general to use their good offices for his restoration the influence of these two wars on domestic affairs and the dispositions of king and people was of the utmost consequence but no alteration was made by them on the foreign interests of the kingdom nothing more happy can be imagined than the situation in which england then stood with regard to foreign affairs Europe was divided between the rival families of Bourbon and Austria, whose opposite interests, and still more their mutual jealousies, secured the tranquillity of this island. Their forces were so nearly counterpoised that no apprehensions were entertained of any event which could suddenly disturb the balance of power between them. The Spanish monarch, deemed the most powerful, lay at greatest distance and the english by that means possessed the advantage of being engaged by political motives into a more intimate union and confederacy with the neighboring potentate the dispersed situation of the spanish dominions rendered the naval power of england formidable to them and kept that empire in continual dependence france more vigorous and more compact was every day rising in policy and discipline and reached at last an equality of power with the house of austria but her progress slow and gradual left it still in the power of england by a timely interposition to check her superiority and thus charles could he have avoided all dissensions with his own subjects was in a situation to make himself be courted and respected by every power in europe and what has scarcely ever since been attained by the princes of this island he could either be active with dignity or neutral with security. A neutrality was embraced by the King, and during the rest of his reign he seems to have little regarded foreign affairs, except so far as he was engaged by honor and by friendship for his sister and the Palatine to endeavor the procuring of some relief for that unhappy family. He joined his good offices to those of France and mediated a peace between the kings of sweden and poland in hopes of engaging the former to embrace the protection of the oppressed protestants in the empire this was the fame gustavus whose heroic genius seconded by the wisest policy made him in a little time the most distinguished monarch of the age and rendered his country formerly unknown and neglected of great weight in the balance of europe To encourage and assist him in his projected invasion of Germany, Charles agreed to furnish him with six thousand men, but that he might preserve the appearance of neutrality, he made use of the Marquis of Hamilton's name. That nobleman entered into an engagement with Gustavus, and enlisting those troops in England and Scotland, at Charles' expense, he landed them in the Elbe. The decisive battle of Leipzig was fought soon after. Where the conduct of tilly and the valor of the imperialists were overcome by the superior conduct of gustavus and the superior valor of the swedes. What remained of this hero's life was one continued series of victory for which he was less beholden to fortune than to those personal endowments which he derived from nature and from industry. That rapid progress of conquest which we so much admire in ancient history, was here renewed in modern annals and without that cause to which in former ages it had ever been owing military nations were not now engaged against an undisciplined and unwarlike people nor heroes set in opposition to cowards the veteran troops of ferdinand conducted by the most celebrated generals of the age were foiled in every encounter and all Germany was overrun in an instant by the victorious Swede. But by this extraordinary and unexpected success of his ally, Charles failed of the purpose for which he framed the alliance. Gustavus, elated by prosperity, began to form more extensive plans of ambition, and in freeing Germany from the yoke of Ferdinand, he intended to reduce it to subjection under his own. He refused to restore the palatine to his principality, except on conditions which would have kept him in total dependence, and thus the negotiation was protracted till the Battle of Lutzen, where the Swedish monarch perished in the midst of a complete victory which he ordained over his enemies. We have carried on these transactions a few years beyond the present period, that we might not be obligated to return to them nor be henceforth interrupted in our account of Charles' court and kingdoms. When we consider Charles as presiding in his court, as associating with his family, it is difficult to imagine a character at once more respectable and more amiable. A kind husband, an indulgent father, a gentle master, a steadfast friend—to all these eulogies his conduct in private life fully entitled him." As a monarch, too, in the exterior qualities he excelled, in the essential he was not defective. His address and manner, though perhaps inclining a little towards stateliness and formality, in the main corresponded to his high rank, and gave grace to that reserve and gravity which were natural to him. The moderation and equity which shone forth in his temper seemed to secure him against rash and dangerous enterprises, The good sense which he displayed in his discourse and conversation seemed to warrant his success in every reasonable undertaking. Other endowments likewise he had attained which in a private gentleman would have been highly ornamental, but which in a great monarch might have proved extremely useful to his people. He was possessed of an excellent taste in all the fine arts, and the love of painting was in some degree his favorite passion. Learned beyond what is common in princes, he was a good judge of writing in others and enjoyed himself no mean talent in composition. In any other age or nation this monarch had been secure of a prosperous and a happy reign, but the high idea of his own authority which he had imbibed made him incapable of giving way to the spirit of liberty which began to prevail among his subjects his politics were not supported by such vigor and foresight as might enable him to subdue their pretensions and maintain his prerogative at the high pitch to which it had been raised by his predecessors and above all the spirit of enthusiasm being universally diffused disappointed all the views of human prudence and disturbed the operation of every motive which usually influences society but the misfortunes arising from these causes were yet remote Charles now enjoyed himself in the full exercise of his authority, in a social intercourse with his friends and courtiers, and in a moderate use of those pleasures which he most affected. After the death of Buckingham, who had somewhat alienated Charles from the Queen, she is to be considered as his chief friend and favorite. That rustic contempt of the fair sex which James affected, and which banishing them from his court made it resemble more a fair in exchange than a seat of a great prince, was very wide of the disposition of this monarch. But though full of complaisance to the whole sex, Charles reserved all his passion for his consort, to whom he attached himself with unshaken fidelity and confidence. By her sense and spirit, as well as by her beauty, she justified the fondness of her husband, though it is allowed that being somewhat of a passionate temper, she precipitated him into hasty and imprudent measures. Her religion, likewise, to which she was much addicted, must be regarded as a great misfortune, since it augmented the jealousy which prevailed against the court, and engaged her to procure for the Catholics some indulgences which were generally distasteful to the nation. In the former situation of the English government, when the sovereign was, in a great measure, independent of his subjects, THE KING CHOSE HIS MINISTERS EITHER FROM PERSONAL FAVOR OR FROM AN OPINION OF THEIR ABILITIES, WITHOUT ANY REGARD TO THEIR PARLIAMENTARY INTEREST OR TALENTS. IT HAS SINCE BEEN THE MAXIM OF PRINCES, WHENEVER POPULAR LEADERS ENCROACH TOO MUCH ON ROYAL AUTHORITY TO CONFER OFFICES ON THEM, IN EXPECTATION THAT THEY WILL AFTERWARDS BECOME MORE CAREFUL NOT TO DIMINISH THAT POWER WHICH HAS BECOME THEIR OWN. These politics were now embraced by Charles, a sure proof that a secret revolution had happened in the Constitution, and had necessitated the Prince to adopt new maxims of government. But the views of the King were at this time so repugnant to those of the Puritans, that the leaders whom he gained lost from that moment all interest with their party, and were even pursued as traitors with implacable hatred and resentment this was the case with sir thomas wentworth whom the king created first a baron then a viscount and afterwards earl of strafford made him president of the council of york and deputy of ireland and regarded him as his chief minister and counsellor by his eminent talents and abilities strafford merited all the confidence which his master reposed in him his character was stately and austere more fitted to procure esteem than love his fidelity to the King was unshaken, but as he now employed all his counsels to support the prerogative which he had formerly bent all his endeavours to diminish, his virtue seems not to have been entirely pure, but to have been susceptible of strong impressions from private interest and ambition. Sir Dudley Diggs was about the same time created master of the Rolls, Noy, attorney-general, Littleton solicitor-general, all these had likewise been parliamentary leaders, and were men eminent in their profession. In all ecclesiastical affairs, and even in many civil, Laud Bishop of London had great influence over the King. This man was virtuous, if severity of manners alone and abstinence from pleasure could deserve that name. He was learned, if polemical knowledge could entitle him to that praise. He was disinterested, but with unceasing industry he studied to exalt the priestly and prelatical character which was his own. His zeal was unrelenting in the cause of religion, that is, in imposing by rigorous measures his own tenets and pious ceremonies on the obstinate Puritans, who had profanely dared to oppose him. In prosecution of his holy purposes he overlooked every human consideration, or, in other words, the heat and indiscretion of his temper, made him neglect the views of prudence and rules of good manners he was in this respect happy that all his enemies were also imagined by him the declared enemies to loyalty and true piety and that every exercise of his anger by that means became in his eyes a merit and a virtue this was the man who acquired so great an ascendant over charles and who led him, by the facility of his temper, into a conduct which proved so fatal to himself and to his kingdoms. The humor of the nation ran at that time into the extreme opposite to superstition, and it was with difficulty that the ancient ceremonies to which men had been accustomed and which had been sanctified by the practice of the first reformers could be retained in divine service yet was this the time which laud chose for the introduction of new ceremonies and observances besides that these were sure to displease as innovations there lay in the opinion of the public another very forcible objection against them laud and the other prelates who embraced his measures were generally well instructed in sacred antiquity and had adopted many of those religious sentiments which prevailed during the fourth and fifth centuries When the christian church as is well known was already sunk into those superstitions which were afterwards continued and augmented by the policy of rome the revival therefore of the ideas and practices of that age could not fail of giving the english faith and liturgy some resemblance to the catholic superstition which the kingdom in general and the puritans in particular held in the greatest horror and detestation men also were apt to think that without some secret purpose such insignificant observances would not be imposed with such unrelenting zeal on the refractory nation and that laud's scheme was to lead back the english by gradual steps to the religion of their ancestors they considered not that the very insignificancy of these ceremonies recommended them to the superstitious prelate and made them appear the more peculiarly sacred and religious, as they could serve to no other purpose. Nor was the resemblance of the Romanish ritual any objection, but rather a merit which Laud and his brethren, who bore a much greater kindness to the mother church, as they called her, than to the sectaries and Presbyterians, and frequently recommended her as a true Christian church, an appellation which they refused or at least scrupled to give to the others. So openly were these tenets espoused that not only the discontented Puritans believed the Church of England to be relapsing fast into Romanish superstition, the Court of Rome itself entertained hopes of regaining its authority in this island, and in order to forward Laud's supposed good intentions, an offer was twice made to him in private of a cardinal's hat, which he declined accepting. His answer was, as he says himself, that something dwelt within him which would not suffer his compliance till rome were other than it is a court lady daughter of the earl of devonshire having turned catholic was asked by laud the reason of her conversion tis chiefly said she because i hate to travel in a crowd the meaning of this expression being demanded she replied i perceive your grace and many others are making haste to rome and therefore, in order to prevent my being crowded, I have gone before you. It must be confessed that though Laud deserved not the appellation of Papist, the genius of his religion was, though in a less degree, the same with that of the Romanish. The same profound respect was exacted to the sacerdotal character, the same submission required to the creeds and decrees of synods and councils. The same pomp and ceremony was effected in worship, and the same superstitious regard to days, postures, meats, and vestments. No wonder, therefore, that this prelate was everywhere among the Puritans regarded with horror as the forerunner of Antichrist as a specimen of the new ceremonies to which Laud sacrificed his own quiet and that of the nation it may not be amiss to relate those which he was accused of employing in the consecration of St. Catherine's Church, and which were the object of such general scandal and offence. On the bishop's approach to the west door of the church, a loud voice cried, "'Open, open ye everlasting doors, that the King of Glory may enter in!' Immediately the doors of the church flew open, and the bishop entered. Falling upon his knees with eyes elevated and arms expanded, he uttered these words This place is holy, the ground is holy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I pronounce it holy. End of section 9, chapter 52, part 1. Recording by Kevin Davidson, www.blogordie.com.